Our emotions are designed, they're designed to inform us, not to direct us. There is no number you're ever going to get to that is going to heal whatever is going on inside of you. I think defining what it means to be a man is not possible. And, and when I say I don't think it's possible, I think I mean on a mass scale of agreement throughout societies. Oftentimes, anger is simply sadness masked. Because I feel like you never really stop growing. And if you have stopped growing, like you're already dead in the water. You know, stagnation is synonymous to death. You are now embarking on the Imperfect Experience. Hello, Imperfect listeners. It's your host, Luke West, back with another episode of the podcast where we discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposefully. Before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know I've started a Facebook group called The Imperfect Group, where we will be continuing to have conversations about these topics in a, in a community specific for masculinity and the fan base of this podcast. So link in the description of the show if you're interested in joining. But on this episode, my guest is Joshua Shea, and we talk about the ease of pornography consumption and production, pornography addiction, nofap, the red flags that come with pornography addiction, its effect on relationships and partners, having honest conversations about pornography as a whole, uh, OnlyFans, and how porn in the pandemic has changed a lot of things. Joshua Shea is a former pornography addict himself, uh, and he's turned to be an expert on a mission to get the world talking about pornography addiction and the potential ramifications being a porn addict can cause. He is the author of three books. Um, those include Porn and the Pandemic, How Three Months in 2020 Changed Everything, which, which was just released in this past July. He's also the author of The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships. Um, and another one, He's a Porn Addict, Now What? Um, so those are all his books. Link in the description below as well if you're looking to read up any more of those. If you like this episode, please make sure to press subscribe, follow, leave a review, and message me on Instagram at the imperfect pod or email me at luke at the imperfect pod.com i always want to hear from my listeners and continue the conversation so links in the description we're going to get into the episode now okay imperfect listeners i am very excited to be here with today's guest joshua shay shay is the right correct pronunciation correct yes yes oh it my is. god i'm choking on my you own words there. pronounced pronunciation wrong how, how ironic <laughs> I, I can never get that word right. Um, and we're talking about everyone's favorite topic today, pornography. I know that was a little bit tongue in cheek. No one likes to talk about it. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, but Joshua, before we get into it, my first question I always ask my guests is, who was one person, dead or alive, that you'd like to have for dinner? And what would you cook for them? Oh, uh, good question. Um one person they're alive at the dinner though like it's a dead person they're not dead correct correct no that'd be kind of weird if you were getting dinner with a dead person yeah that uh, was dead yeah i don't you know i think that i am not religious at all but i think it would be interesting to uh have jesus for dinner um after he died um, okay. so you can ask about the resurrection. You can ask where his body went. Um, I, I've always had problems since I was a little kid with the fact his body disappeared, but with the rest of us, when we die, our body doesn't disappear. Um, so how does his spirit rise into heaven and ours supposedly rise into heaven, but they've never found his body. So I, I would want that explained to me. 
Okay. I might well, go, I sense. might I might go back to religion if he could give me a good answer, but nobody's ever been able to give me a good answer, so my my heathenness has kind of carried me through life. Yeah. And what would you cook for him? Uh I'm gonna guess Jesus is probably a big fan of fish since he was always, you know, multiplying them and uh feeding crowds. So, you know, I, I, I think I could probably uh maybe even get some good techniques on on how to cook fish from him or or how to bake bread. He liked to give loaves away too and you know He did. So yeah, I'd I'd probably go with the bread and maybe fish sandwiches. Bread and fish. I know that he's 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 partial to so yeah, I'd, I'd probably go with fish sandwiches. Do you have a favorite fish? Halibut or uh, salmon? Well I, I probably like to uh i like to eat salmon the most um but i like deep sea fishing um so you know some of those bigger ones that you catch and have to fight and that kind of stuff i uh mm-hmm. bonita is a fun fish to catch because they're they're so ornery yeah and so before we get into it i want to ask you a very simple question that i think will help frame the rest of this conversation in terms of when you talk about porn you're not really anti-porn, correct? Like it's it's more um, moderating your consumption. You're not someone who demonizes the, the, no, no. the and, aspect, right? I think that I do think that there are some moral aspects to porn that are a little dodgy. But I also think that uh, morality is something that has to be determined by each individual person. I do not think that pornography will ever disappear i think it would be even more futile than the prohibition we did on alcohol because porn is an extension of our natural sexuality whether it's healthy or unhealthy it is an extension and you're not going to get rid of that uh you know the the cave paintings from ancient Phoenicia, you will find porn on the walls. As long as men's been, men have been able to draw on walls, they've drawn pornography. Same thing with the, you know, vases and pottery you'll find from ancient Egypt and whatnot. Um, you'll see some pretty triple X stuff on those vases if you look. Uh, so I, I think it's futile, even if I wanted to end porn, which I don't necessarily, because it's a wasted energy. So I don't think about it. Um, And Mm -hmm. I also think that uh, the arguments that were used against porn by a lot of the uh, radical left feminist and a lot of the religious right of the 60s, 70s and 80s clearly didn't work. So if people are anti-porn, they need to drop those arguments. Um, For instance, the idea that porn stars are doing this because they're depressed and they've had bad upbringings and they're on drugs. Well, I challenge you to go to the kitchen of any TGI Fridays or Buffalo Wild Wings and find somebody who hasn't had a rough childhood, who doesn't smoke weed after work, who is, who, you know, it's, the, the, the porn world does not have the exclusive monopoly 
on workers who are unhappy. Um, yeah. And, and you know what? That's I still eat at Buffalo Wild Wings and millions of people still look at porn. Uh, we don't really think of the plight of others. So a lot of those arguments that you know we faced in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I think that uh, they've been largely debunked or ignored. So mm-hmm. uh, we need to talk about other aspects of it because clearly that didn't work. Yeah. And and I really wanted to ask that question because I know that there might be some men listening being like, oh, you're talking to a guy who's so anti-porn. He doesn't care about porn. I'm like, no, that's I don't nope. think that's the way that you're coming at this. Nope, nope. I don't um, look at porn because it's unhealthy for me because it wrecked my life for quite a long time. But that's me. I couldn't handle it. I also couldn't handle alcohol. I was an alcoholic. But I can I have no problems with food. I have no problems with gambling. Uh, you know, so I, I think I don't want somebody to come by and tell me that I cannot hit a casino two or three times a year. I don't want mm-hmm. somebody to tell me I can't have a second piece of cake uh, because, you know, that's an addiction for some people. I understand it is just as I understand pornography is just as when I go out to eat with my friends, you know, they know they can order a drink around me and I'm not going to freak out. It's, it's my issue, not theirs. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I think a lot of people sometimes do is they project onto others, their own addiction. And they're like, you can't do this around me. And I understand that there's a respect aspect there. Um, and, and no one really watches porn in front of another person. So I don't really think that would happen to a, but that, that is what's interesting in a lot of what I think porn addiction is, is that it, it is one that seems to men seem to suffer in silence. And I'm going to talk specifically more about men because obviously, obviously this is a masculinity and manhood show. Um, and I'm really curious about hearing yours. Like you said that it wrecked your life. And, um, as someone who grows up as a man, I've obviously seen porn, watch porn, um, in, that aspect like what did you find was the most damaging aspects of your life like yeah the reality is that an average porn user the average guy who uses porn is in fact looking to get off you know there's there's no two ways about it and masturbation is part of sexuality ejaculation is part of sexuality this is a vital role to the uh continuation of our species Uh, I don't think there's anything dirty about continuing the species. So, you know, I, 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 I always try to let people know that, you know, I try to use technical terms, but we are going to talk about, uh, some basic bodily functions. Um, I don't think that there is anything unhealthy with that when it comes to your average guy. Uh, Again, we can talk about what kind of porn they're looking at, how often they're looking at it, but with an average guy, he is looking for the orgasm. Uh, Porn addicts are not like that, and that's what really needs to be uh, stated up front. Uh, For myself, um, I learned through two trips to inpatient rehab, the first for alcohol, the second for porn addiction, that my my alcohol addiction was really about numbing. And it was just about kind of not feeling anything. With pornography, because of my upbringing, um, and it's important to point out that as far as men go, uh, who are porn addicts, uh, Patrick Carnes, who's kind of the godfather of, of the porn and sex addiction industry, 
he did a study, uh, one of the first on the subject, and found that roughly 70% of men uh, who are porn addicts were physically abused, 80% were sexually abused, and around 95% were emotionally or uh, mentally abused. Compared that to the six, so that, that breaks down to around 89-90% of all porn addicts have some kind of trauma based on abuse. Uh, for comparison's sake, alcoholism is about 66-67%. Uh, so you're you're dealing with almost always unresolved trauma. My unresolved trauma was based on control issues. Uh, when I was being abused as a youngster by a babysitter who I was with every day um, when my parents went to work, and it was, it was sexual and it was uh, the mental and uh, emotional kind. There was really no physical abuse. Um, but... I, I'm like all those other guys, and my issue really was about control. I've always owned my own companies. I've always marched to the beat of my own drummer. I have always made sure that I could pay my own bills. I have made sure that nobody else is calling the shots for me. And you can see this happening from 13 years old straight forward. And if you look over the timeline of my life, those times where I was under the most stress, had the most anxiety, and felt the most out of control, those were the times when the pornography addiction really spiked because I used pornography to make myself believe that I had more control in my life in those times than I did. And if you think about it, think about a guy watching pornography. What's the advantage of that? Well, nobody on screen is ever going to say no to you. Nobody on screen is ever going to tell you to take the trash out. Nobody on screen ever is, says, you know, I'm your boss and you're not doing a good enough job here at work. You are the master of your universe when you are looking at porn. If you want to watch a black girl do a Spanish girl do an Asian girl while three Mexican guys throw tater tots at them and Irish music is playing. I guarantee you that's out there somewhere. And you are the one to decide that you want to watch it. None of those people on the screen are going to say, hey, Josh, this is bad. Don't watch this. Hey, Josh, I'm not going to submit to your will. It's it's on video. They're already there. They they aren't going to object. They aren't going to tell you mm. that you're a pervert. They aren't going to tell you that you're weird. One of the things about pornography, the reason we don't talk about it, is because it does get to those little secret areas in the back of our head, the places where, you know, we don't want to admit we have a certain itch that needs to be scratched, whatever genre that might be, whatever nationality or uh, that might be, whatever it is that you like for porn that you think is a little bit different, well, you're not judged for having that taste mm -hmm. when you're looking at it. And I think, you know, men need to understand that uh, that is the casual way of looking at porn. But for me, it was all about control. It, it allowed me to feel like in the worst times of my life, I had more control than I really did. And I, I think that's fascinating because for me too, I like, it does come down to control. And, and in my personal life, you know, I, I know a lot of guys that talk about it. I've talked to my guy friends about it. And whenever we talk about pornography, it it's always seems to be like a joking, like really lighthearted manner. 
but at the same time, it's it's kind of worrisome how no one really has the conversation, or worrisome to me that no one has the conversation about how might how serious it might actually be on on our on our brains if you're starting to watch it from a really young age as people have more access. You know, I know that you and my dad's generation it was more magazines. It was harder to get access. It wasn't as as accessible as it is now. And and you can go on the website if you know the URL type it in and watch anything you want without confirming your age. Well, absolutely. And if you think about it, you and I have been talking now about 15 minutes and there is a kid out there somewhere who has watched more hardcore pornography in the last 15 minutes than his grandfather saw in that in his entire lifetime. You know, that's how radically different things have changed. I couldn't imagine having had access to the internet at 12 or 13 years old. Um, I thought that I was, you know, uh, gaming the system when I was 14, 15, and I found a video store that was willing to rent porno movies to me um, because, you know, they were they weren't supposed to do that. But Blockbuster at that point had begun to put the mom and pops out of business. So as long as there wasn't a cop standing there, the mom and pops would mostly allow you to buy whatever you wanted or rent whatever you wanted. My my every day after school, in high school, unless I had something else to do, was to rent a couple porno movies, buy a couple beers at a convenience store that didn't care, and I'd go home. Before my parents got home, I'd watch one porno, drink a couple beers. You know, five hours later, once everybody went to bed, I'd watch the other porno and drink the other beers. And that was kind of my teenage life before I moved out. And then once mm-hmm. I moved out, I could do this stuff whenever I wanted. Yeah. And, and you talked a little bit about control. And I think that that is a, that's a huge aspect of, of where the, the intimacy gets lost when men get into relationships with women is that, you know, beforehand they were controlling the speed. They were controlling what the women wanted to do because they were able to access videos of certain quality or certain, and I've, I've heard, and I've, I've experienced going down the rabbit hole of getting more less and less vanilla as you, as the kids would say nowadays, and you have to kind of push your barriers. Um, And, you know, when you all of a sudden become physically intimate with a woman, you're no longer in control. And and I think that leads to a lot of erectile dysfunction and other, right. Does that, have you seen that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things when people ask me, why, what's the big deal about porn? I mean, obviously there's porn addiction, but you can be addicted to anything. So what's the real big deal about porn? And I share this story. The last time I was able to uh, speak in front of a group of uh, college students was right before COVID. It was in uh, December of last year. And I was invited to a health center for a women's sexuality group at at a college uh, here in New England. And after I gave my presentation, we moved on to the Q&A. And one of these women who was 19 or 20, I'm guessing, she raised her hand and said, I don't know if you've uh, heard about this from other women or if other women here agree with me, but I really don't like, nor do I want to have sex with virgin men. And there was a few women there who kind of their eyes lit up. And they were nodding. And I said, okay, well, that's 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 interesting, but what does that have to do with pornography? And this uh, woman, sa- woman said, she said, you know, 
you just told us that the average boy looks at pornography at 12 years old. Well, the virgins that we are uh, meeting, interacting with are 18 years old, 19 years old. They have had six or seven years to watch porn. This has been their sex education. And if you look at, you know, even your straight ahead vanilla porn of one man, one woman, the man is there bending the woman into any shape he wants. He's the one who's talking aggressively. Most of these movies have him holding you know, her down, often by the neck. And this doesn't even talk about how these videos end, which is a way that sex never ends in real relationships. You know, in real relationships, the girl doesn't have to wipe her face off at the end. And that's the thing is that if these boys at 12 and 13 have been watching these videos and they see hundreds or thousands of these videos, when they finally get with a girl at, say, 18 years old, what has been their role model? It's been these male porn stars who have this whole other act going. And these young ladies, much like anybody who has had a, a healthy sexual relationship, understands that pornography is at the core fiction. Yet, how are these guys going to understand it's fiction if nobody's ever told them, if mm -hmm. nobody's ever really, really taught them what is healthy, what is intimacy? So we've got a young generation of males who are being raised on pornography thinking that this is normal behavior, and that is sexually unhealthy. That has nothing to do you know, necessarily with addiction. But we are raising an unhealthy generation of boys based on what they are seeing on pornography. And like you said, unlike when your father or my uh, or I was uh, younger, you know, it was magazines, it was a DVD or it was a video, and you watch the same thing over and over, or you know. But with the internet now, you never ever have to watch the same piece of pornography twice you know most people don't watch the same piece of pornography twice so you know like 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 i said how many hundreds of times have these guys seen the sex act you know portrayed in a way mm -hmm. that is absolutely untrue you know the uh, interesting statistic the two things that guys say they want more than anything are three ways and anal sex and the reality is normal women, less than one quarter will allow a guy to have anal sex with them and less than 10% have ever experienced a three-way. These are minority minuscule things. If you're a guy and you've got a girl who's saying, no, I won't let you do me in the butt. No, I'm not going to invite my friend to join us. They're completely normal. They're completely average. The world is not a pornography movie but these guys, because of the nonstop access to so much variety on the internet, are not internalizing this. Yeah, well, I would almost counter in a lot of ways that that might be how the world is going to be in 20, 30 years. Because as we mentioned, the the and you are much more, you can confirm or deny this probably, but young men age 12, 13 are watching pornography as we, we just went over. But 
I would say women probably, or like I would theorize that women are not watching it as young, but their first experiences when they're 14, 15, which, and the world is becoming a little bit more sexualized as I'm pretty sure we're all aware. And if they're having sex that young and they're learning from the 12, 13 year old boy who is learning through porn, I mean, I think a lot of the women my age now that I talk to are a little bit more promiscuous in what they're willing to do. You see a few more like there's a little bit op- more open empowerment sexualization of women and, and they take it on themselves and as part of the female empowerment movement. At the same time, it's like y- you see that I think for me that the trickle down of young men teaching women how to have sex based off what they've seen in porn. I'm not sure if that's true. There's a lot of hypothesis there. But- right. Well, what I, I, I can tell you what we are seeing in the statistics of pornography addiction increasing. Uh, the biggest category is not your straight white men, because we are the ones, uh, and I, I don't know if you're straight or not, I'm just assuming. Uh, I am. The, uh, the straight white male is the group that porn has been marketed to forever. Back in the 70s and 80s, it was not cheap to make a porn movie. These people were actually actors. You had to use film. You had a crew. And then you had to distribute the film, whether it was into theaters or videotapes and whatnot, into adult stores. It was not easy to make a porn, produce the porn, distribute the porn. So you needed to go after the most likely possible audience because at the end of the day porn is a business and that was your straight white male well if you look at the internet today the reality is tomorrow morning you and i could round up a couple you know men and women on the internet through craigslist easy enough we could have the porno shot during the afternoon on our iphones and we could have it uploaded to pornhub by the end of the day and that's how it that's what it takes to make a porn movie these days and because it's so much uh less expensive for the entire process it's possible that these companies can target specific people so you're now seeing white women have an explosion of pornography addiction. You're seeing black men have an explosion of pornography addiction. And because of the ease of use of getting to it, where they didn't want to be caught trying going out and finding it in the past, you're seeing men from the Catholic Church and the Mormon Church, uh, the LDS Church, they are also exploding with numbers of porn addiction. So you can target these guys now or these women in a way that you couldn't before because you don't have to gross as much money on mm-hmm. a porn product because it doesn't cost nearly as much as it did to make in the past. And that's where you get the segmenting. That's why you go on to a porn site and there's 120 different genres and you're like, who is watching people wearing diapers? But there are enough people out there who that's their fetish that you can make diaper videos and still make money. That's what Mm -hmm. the internet has done as far as segmenting and going after targeted audiences. And I do agree with a lot of your hypothesis because it turns out whether you're white or black or male or female or rich or poor or whatever you are, you have sexuality. And, you know, whether you're, you know, depending on how you're raised, depending on your DNA, depending on your choices, that will determine, you know, what, what route you go with sexuality. But when I was in 
uh, rehab for porn and sex addiction. There were people ranging from age 18 to about 75. There was men and women. There were people who were, you know, poor as anything and richer than I could ever hope to be. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, smart as a whip, stupid as a stump. There is no target for porn addiction. And that's one of the things that I try to drive home to people is that I think that we get this picture that a porn addict is a 19 year old guy who lives in his mom's basement, who's never kissed a girl in real life. He's a socially awkward pervert. And while I'm sure there are those out there, that stereotype is incorrect. When it comes Mm -hmm. to addiction, it can be anybody. If you see a guy and you think there's no way that that guy could be a porn addict, you're absolutely wrong. And that's the case with women now too. Yeah. And and I loved what you said there. And like, I didn't even consider the whole accessibility or in terms of access um, and the creation, the production creation and the cost of it. And you know what? I've, I had a ex, well, I had a porn star, Eric Everhart on my podcast, and we had a conversation about this. And one of the things that he talks about is that when I asked him this question, cause I was really curious to ask someone in the industry that question, like whose responsibility is it to create good sex education? Um, he said, you know, at the end of the day, porn is fantasy, just like your movie, just like your anything else. It's cinematic. And, and to me, yeah, it is a c- cinematic, but it's not as communicated from parents and society. You know, when I'm watching a movie, I go to a theater, there's tons of other people around. It's obviously high bombs, high collisions. It's obviously dramatic. And your family and the society tells you that it's dramatic. But when you're watching porn, you do it alone in your room by yourself at a young age. There's nothing, there's no like tons of bombs that makes it obviously that didn't happen in real life. So the fantasy aspect to me and that that logic behind it doesn't really come through a lot of the time because society doesn't communicate that it's fantasized. Society doesn't communicate that it's uh, uh, a fantasy or a, a maybe a dream that we have because we we watch it and consume it alone. It's like naturally an individualized process because we probably know that we shouldn't really be watching it because maybe it's not fantasy or as cinematic as they want it to, to seem if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it, it, it does. And, you know, I think that I appreciate and obviously preach that parents need to take a much bigger role. And I'm sorry in 2020, you have to talk to your kids about pornography, you know, it's not the 1950s. You don't have to talk to them about air raid drills. You know, there's a trade-off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have to react to what is going on in society now, and pornography is part of it. Uh, the place I find, you know, t- two ways his his uh, argument falls apart is there is a ticket taker. There is somebody who, if you want to see an R-rated movie, is going to check your ID and deny you. Um, there are these you know, there's the theater checkers who come through halfway through to make sure your feet aren't on the seats and you're not a couple 13 year old boys watching, you know, something that you shouldn't be there that you snuck into. 
Also, when it comes to the let's, well, parents have to you know be on top of things. Parents can't be on top of things twenty four seven. That's why we have rules. That's why we have drinking ages. You know, it's you a kid cannot just walk into Seven Eleven and pick up beer and walk away and you know go buy it and walk away if their parents you know, just happen to not be there. You know, a kid can't go into a drugstore and just you know pick up some you know medicine that they want to have and, and abuse drugs that way we do have these standards we don't let kids walk into casinos and start gambling even if they have hundreds of dollars in their pocket we do have societal standards and you know I understand that the online world is a different world. I understand that we have uh, an international community when it comes to that. I also recognize that places like India and even now the UK that have tried to clamp down a little bit on the age restrictions are having a heck of a lot of trouble because it is such an international thing and people know how to get around issues real easy. I mean, it takes two seconds to set up a VPN and then anybody in India or the UK who's under 18 years old can get whatever they want. So I feel like he is correct in that the parents have to take the lead, but I don't know what the solution is as far as society goes, uh, as far as being gatekeepers, but society does have to be more of a gatekeeper uh, mm-hmm. than it currently is. What form that takes, I'm not sure. Yeah. And that's an interesting aspect of the whole conversation too. You know, what would you say is one of the hardest things that you had to overcome in your own story in your own recovery process? Because I know that uh, from your website, everyone check it out. Um, It is recoveringpornaddict.com. But I've read articles on it about shame. And I think shame is one of the biggest things a lot of men and addicts kind of face. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about your recovery process? What was the most challenging part for you? Well, I mean, there was first coming to learn when I was younger that I looked at pornography differently. I don't think that I thought I truly had a problem, but I remember at one point in high school, I was on the soccer team. uh, We went to a friend's house after practice one day, and he had a VHS tape of a porn movie and they popped it in the machine and suddenly it became like an episode of mystery science theater 3000 where everybody's cracking jokes and laughing and i'm kind of sitting there not saying much and i i could keep up with the rest of them when it came to you know making jokes but i recognize i didn't want to be watching porn with them i wanted to be watching porn by myself i didn't see what was so funny uh you know it, it was it was eye-opening that I viewed it differently than them. Uh, That was the first time I recognized something was real different. When I started dating women, I started to recognize some were okay with porn, some were okay with sex, and keep in mind we're going to the, uh, you know, early mid-90s now, Um, so it was a little bit more puritanical then, not a lot, but a little bit. Um, And some of these girls and and young women were 
very, I don't want to say anti-sex, but they were holding on to the messages that their church taught them or their mom or their grandma taught them uh, that I don't think you you maybe don't have as much of now or that friends and, and society and pop culture have more of an influence. You know, I didn't have Miley Cyrus shaking her ass on a TV screen the way that young girls do now. Um, leading me to believe, you know, that that or the young girls that I grew up with probably didn't think that that was okay. Um, But to to bring it back to your question, um, I think it was when I had a couple different girlfriends who were really offended that I looked at pornography or that I had a couple porno tapes or a couple of porno magazines that I was made to feel uh, like a bad person. I mean, I, I mm. had to hide the stuff from my mom because she was a hardcore uh, Catholic type who, you know, we didn't walk around the house in our underwear, much less naked when we were little. Um, it was very, you know, prudish. Um, so I was raised kind of very clothed, very sheltered, very, this is not the direction you go in. I think that's part of the reason why the uh, sexuality stuff was so intriguing to me was because I didn't have that in my everyday household growing up. Um, There was always a piece of me that recognized I thought about it probably more than the average person. I noticed that guys never talked about it. Not that I brought it up, but guys just never talked about it. I'd go to a friend's house. They didn't have, you know, a stack of 15 Playboy magazines. Uh, They didn't have, you know, in their VCR, there was never a porno movie. So I recognized I was really different there. And I recognized in being different, especially in your late teens, early 20s, that's not the age where you want to be different so i kept my mouth shut about it and i didn't talk about porn i didn't mention porn but i kind of knew that something was going on different with me uh, Mm -hmm. than with other people and once i discovered the internet you know i never needed another uh, vhs tape or or magazine again and i was one of the early uh arrivers to the internet um I got online in 1993 uh, when Mm -hmm. America Online was just starting. This was before there were even web browsers. Uh, So, and the first thing I did was start to look at porn. I mean, back then it took five minutes to download one photo, uh, which, which I look at now and go, well, there's a red flag if I'm, sitting here for five minutes waiting for a photo to come through. Uh, So there was always the sense that it was, uh, Sex was a taboo topic. Pornography was connected to sex. So there was some kind of taboo there. And I clearly had an interest or a need for it uh, more than other people in my life. Um, I knew I was different. Yeah. And you you mentioned how um, some of the women that you were with didn't like how you watch porn um, were you open with it about it with them or did they catch you? I'm, I'm really curious about that. Well, you know, what's funny as we talked about those guys who, uh, grew up watching porn, you know, I wanted to have anal sex. I wanted these girls to be more free with their bodies. And it was interesting because I usually chose women, um, or, or girls for, for girlfriends or to date who were very innocent, 
and who were who were not over the top crazy. If you look at my history, uh, when it comes to fight or flight and sexuality, I've almost always been a flight guy. You know, I have avo- I avoided going skinny dipping with friends, not because of any body part, but because it just freaked the hell out of me. I never played strip poker or spin the bottle or that kind of stuff with people I knew. Uh, because it just it just it it freaked the hell out of me, mm-hmm. and and I could go to a strip club because I didn't know any of those people. But when it came to the women I was with, they tended to be a little more uh, virginal, a little more vanilla. V- yeah, vanilla would be you know very tasty for some of these <laughs> some of these girls. They were very very calm and normal, and you know would shoot down anything creative i would bring up you know anything creative even beyond just having sex in a bed so mm-hmm. so i guess i you know i i i recognize the fact that well i certainly liked watching material that was more than just a man and a woman having sex in a bed uh you know in missionary position um you know i i, I liked my stuff a little bit more exotic because Every piece of porn is more exotic than that. Yeah. uh, Or or the people are way into it. And I often chose girls who were not way into it. Um, I I remember always thinking that, you know, not just in porn, but in movies. uh, And I understand it's fiction, but you would see this passion. You would see this uh, people really into the moment and lost in the moment. And with most of the women who I dated, that never happened. Sex was sort of mechanical, um, and I was scared to death to push them too far because they were the kind of people who I'm sure that, you know, ultimately they ended up having three partners and, and married a guy and they stopped having sex when they were 28 years old. And I, I just, I, I, these were the women that I dated and they really, you know, most of the time they drove home the point that pornography was bad to me. Okay. So uh, if they drove the point home, then what is, I guess, what did your relationship with it become on a personal level? Did you see it as, as bad as they did? I know you mentioned that um, you needed help, but like, I guess, what was your personal relationship? I I never, I never thought of it very much, to be honest with you. Um, I knew I had to hide it, but I knew I had to hide it from my mom. And I learned how to hide it from my mom. When it became computerized, um, you know, I had to make sure that if I was living with a girlfriend at that time or they were visiting or anything like that, uh, that I, I did not have it on the computer, that I was not looking at it, that even back then that my, uh, you know, Netscape Navigator history was cleared. Um I think that uh, by that point, I had become so good at at deception that the computer just made it easy. I didn't have to hide a big box of porn. I didn't have to always make sure the VCR was cleared of a videotape or the DVD player didn't have a DVD in it. Uh, I had to make sure that, you know, when I, the, the few times that I bought pay-per-view porn that it wasn't still on that channel when somebody turned to it and and there were little times where i I would almost get caught or i even would get caught and i'd 
gaslight my way out of it because by that point I had been, without realizing it, I had been addicted for so long uh, that it was just part of my life. I I planned my day around porn. Not that all I could do when I was working was wait for it. It's just that it was part of my routine. You know, uh, porn was part of my life. I made time for it to be part of my life. People were not going to interrupt that time. If they did, I internally didn't like it. And it was still always, and I guess this is something I didn't realize at the time, and it took a lot of recovery to recognize it. I was using pornography differently than I was when I was having sex, even up to being with my wife in the few years before I, I ended up going and seeking help, uh, sex was very, you know, actual intercourse with my wife hit needs that were very different than jacking it in front of a computer. Um, and that's the thing that a lot of guys who aren't addicts don't understand. Um, you know, masturbating to porn for an addict is almost a way to justify looking at the porn. Uh, at the end of my porn addiction, I wasn't I wasn't masturbating. I was just looking at the porn. Um, mm. I didn't I didn't need to do that. I, I I think that for porn addicts, the masturbation, the ejaculation, it's the you know when, when you finally come, it's the it's the checkered flag. You're finished. That's that's what it is for men when it comes to pornography. I think that men try to time it, and you know I I actually just learned the term edging not too long ago, uh, which is, you know, kind of just stringing yourself along during during a time of, of masturbation uh, so you don't climax. I think that most porn addicts do that because they are looking for that perfect piece of porn to finish with that is going to hit their dopamine receptors and is going to tickle their brain chemistry because that's ultimately what they're going for. They're going for the high in their brain, just like every addict, every other Mm. addict goes for. And one of the things that I hear in my coaching practice when I work with addicts or when I'm talking with a group of addicts is this promise to themselves. I'm only going to look for 30 minutes. I'm only going to look for 40 minutes. And it turns into three, four, five hours. I mean, I've talked to guys who it became 12, 14 hours. I can't, I can't imagine that myself. Guys who would go three or four times in that 12 hours or guys who never would because they couldn't find that perfect piece of porn. If you keep searching and searching and you can't find that perfect piece of porn to finish with, you either have a problem or you're developing one. Because mm-hmm. your brain is becoming immune, your dopamine receptors are becoming immune to the pornography, and you have to escalate, and you're looking for something else. Um, that, yeah. that That's a big red flag that you have a problem. So I guess my question there would be, what is the difference between, or how would you characterize the difference between someone who is addicted and just someone who watches? Like, is there a time if someone watches every day, are they an addict, even though it's just once, but they don't need like 30 minutes, they just do it in 10. Like what would be the barrier or line? It's, it's really, why are you watching? What's causing you to watch and what role does watching play in your life? Um, you know, if this is something that it's, 
you know, it really isn't about the orgasm. It's about self-soothing. You know, that's a red flag. It's a red flag if you start choosing looking at porn over activities like being with your friends or going out and doing things you liked in the past. Uh, it's a red flag if somebody brings up pornography and you are quick to dismiss it or somebody might even say you know a roommate or a girlfriend might say you know hey you're looking at a lot of pornography and you know you as a guy start to get defensive about that well you know if if you're if you don't touch heroin and i call you a heroin addict you're just going to look at me and laugh why would you come why would you become uh, angry that I called you a heroin addict if you're not. If you become angry that somebody calls you a porn addict, there's a problem there. Um, and again, it's also making these promises to yourself. I'm not going to look at porn tomorrow. Uh, and then tomorrow comes and you can't stop yourself and you do. Uh, it's a lot of making promises to yourself, making deals with yourself, not being able to hold them. And ultimately understanding that your behavior either has or could have negative consequences, but you can't stop nonetheless. It's a lot like a magnet. Um, I, I give people this uh, experiment if they want to try it to see what addiction feels like. Tomorrow morning um, or some morning on, on a weekend uh, when you're not doing too much, wake up and grab your smartphone. Turn the volume up all the way. Turn up the notifications. Turn up every buzz and tweet and, and whatever it is. You want that thing to be as loud and vibrating and crazy as possible. Then take a post-it note and put it across the front of the screen so you can't see what's on the screen. Then put that phone next to you. I guarantee you, if you're like most people, within 10 minutes, you're going to hear some kind of buzz or ding. But you can't look at it because you have that post-it note on the phone. A few minutes later, there's going to be another sound. Maybe it's a text. Maybe somebody's liking your latest Instagram post. You can't look at it. The phone may ring 10 minutes after that. You can't look at it. What you're going to find is this withdrawal start to happen. And I've had a lot of people try this after I've suggested it. I would say the average person gets to about five or six notifications before they say, "I this is too much, and they rip that post-it note off the front of their phone. That's because as a society, we have most of us have very small addictions compulsions, whatever, to our phone. We're scared to death we're going to miss something. We're addicted to knowing what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. That's what addiction feels like. That Those pangs of, of, of I've got to see what's on that phone. I've got to rip off that post-it note. That's addiction if you multiply it by probably 50. Yeah, that's the way that's the way addiction feels for people who are wondering if you feel that way with pornography, if you can't wait to get at it, if you wake up in the morning and the first thing you want to do on your phone is look at pornography. If it's a priority in your life in a way, it's not a priority with others and you will prioritize it in front of a lot of normal stuff. If you understand there are negative ramifications to the behavior, you probably have an issue with pornography. Mm. And that, that's a really good comparison because I would say even if you don't have your phone on full volume and full notifications, you're still checking your phone every five minutes. You know, for me, one of the things I've done in the last month or so is I try to keep my phone out of my room and like 
my my bedroom. Uh, I try to not check my phone until eight thirty in the morning, and then at ten o'clock at night, I put it down for the rest of the night. Um, that has been very difficult for me, and yeah. and some nights it's like you know I I was me- messaging a friend until nine. 55, they probably messaged me back. I'm like, I want to respond, but no, I'm going to wait till tomorrow morning to respond. I've had a couple of friends message me and be like, oh, where'd you go? And I'm like, well, I'm trying this thing where I just put my phone down at 10. I don't check it anymore. But for me, I have to leave it in the other room because even though it's my phone's always on silent, it's never on volume, I still check my phone way too much. And I'm finding that this has been very helpful with creating that space away from my phone and learning how to be comfortable with it. So I thought that was kind of relevant there. Well, and I, I, there's this guy in a uh, support group I was in who said it once so well. Uh, he's like, you know, if I wake up in the middle of the night and I have to pee, I fight it. I don't want to get up out of my warm, comfortable bed. I ask myself, am I not in enough pain that I can just fall back to sleep? And I think we've all been there, if we admit it, that, you know, you're, you look at the clock and it's a half hour before you have to get up and, you know. But he also said, as an addict, and, and this didn't happen very often with me, but it did happen from time to time, you wake up at 2 a.m. and you want to look at porn, you're going to get up and look at porn. You know, that, that, that's the sign of an addict. You won't get out of bed for a basic bodily function like going to the bathroom, but you will get out of bed because your brain is screaming for that dopamine hit from the pornography. That's, that's a real indication that something's up. And like you said, it's, it's tough to break those, uh, those routines. It's tough to break those practices. And the longer you've been an addict, the, the longer, you know, the more extreme it gets, the more you have to flood your head with dopamine before you get that original high, you know, it's, it takes that much longer to kind of deprogram from it. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you is I, you mentioned how you, st- you had, you started going to recovery, um, in your marriage. I think that's what you said. Um, yep. so you started going and did you find that porn was affecting your relationship with even just your like women friends with your wife? Like how did you see it manifest in, in those everyday ways? Did you see it at all? Because I think that's something a lot of guys might think happens, but doesn't or does. I had this very weird thing that um, I, and I can't, I, it, it's hard to even know exactly where it came from. I know it's tied to females. I know it's tied to porn. I don't do it anymore. And I never went through any real therapy to stop doing this. But it stopped after I was using porn. So I think there's a connection. Uh, And my wife pointed this out to me. She pointed out the fact that I could never look a woman in the eyes. Whether I could look her most of the time, but I could not look a waitress in the eyes. I could not look a cashier in the eyes. I could not look her friends in the eyes. I could not look a woman in the eyes. And the reason is because I felt like they could read my mind. And my mind was always so preoccupied with porn or that I would think that they were an attractive woman. And I was afraid that my eyes were saying that. And I didn't want my eyes to say that to them. So I had this weird issue with nonverbal communication with women. Uh, 
I wasn't the type of guy who, you know, your, your stereotypical uh, uh, leer at a woman or whistle at her from the car or anything like that. I never once picked up a woman in a bar. Um, I, I, I don't have, I don't want to say confidence, but I don't have that kind of personality type where a gregarious uh, out showing or acting up uh, is, is something that I would do. Um, when it came to the women in my life beyond just that I thing, uh, it was something that I knew I had to hide. It was something that I tried never to talk about. It was something that uh, I knew by default that there were very few women in this world who liked porn as much as I did or who used porn as much as I did. And if any of them found out, they would be disgusted. So I had to hide that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I hid it for most of my guy friends and guy acquaintances too, but I understood guys looked at porn with the women. I assumed that none of them ever looked at porn. I could never mention it to them. And it was just a, a side of me and a piece of me that I don't know what else it influenced, but I did not share that side of my life with any female whatsoever. Yeah. I think that's that's really interesting because even in my life, I've, I've always wondered how it's manifested. And I don't really think it has in a lot of ways. I, don't, I wouldn't label myself an, an addict, uh, but... I was like, is it affecting my relationships with women? I don't think so. I've, I've never had that eye contact problem. Um, and one thing I thought was really interesting is that you said what you looked for in porn was different than what you looked for in sex. Like, what were those differences? I'm, I'm like, for me, I would imagine it's it's the intimacy part of it. Um, but I'm curious, right? You know, well, I mean, there's there is there is something about touching yourself. That is way different than laying naked with a woman. Uh, it's it's just it's it's night and day, and the feel of physical intimacy with a woman, even if she's just laying next to you, is so radically different. And to me, has so many I don't know how you say it not you know nerve endings or there, it's such a more visceral. Uh, experience experience your senses are so much more acute and and on point when you're actually physically with a woman especially if you don't have clothes on than you ever will watching any porn that's out there um with the you know i would say two women who i've loved in my life there was a real chemistry to the emotional and mental intimacy part of things that you will never ever find with pornography uh there i mean and and when it comes to the actual physical act this is just me and i've honestly never and this is here's a first for your podcast i've never said this out loud before but the orgasm is so much better when you're with a woman than when you're with yourself um you know i sought the touch of a woman, the love of a woman, the intimacy with a woman, because that hit different, you know, that checked off different boxes than using porn. Porn was about the control. Porn was about dulling my senses. Porn was about dealing, even though I didn't recognize I was, it was about dealing with the uh, abuse, dealing with the unresolved trauma. Um, that That's why I went to the porn. Uh, if I could have had sex every night with a woman, I still would have been using porn. 
you know, mm. that that's the thing that I always, I do a lot of uh, working with women who have a lot of coaching with women who have porn addicted husbands or boyfriends. And I try to explain to them that, you know, you can come, you know, if your if your husband or boyfriend has a cheerleader fantasy, you can come to bed dressed as a cheerleader tomorrow night. That's not going to stop his porn addiction. You and your best friend can come dressed as cheerleaders the following night. The next night after that, he's just going to want to have you add another girl. It's not about the the act of intimacy and intercourse versus the act of looking at pornography, masturbating to pornography. If you are an addict, they mm. serve different masters. And I have to drive home the point to these women that you had absolutely nothing to do with the you know pornography addiction. Uh, and that's one of the things that pornography addiction affects the couple so much more than any other addiction. If your husband is a heroin addict, you don't ask yourself if it's because you're not pretty enough. You know, if your husband has a gambling addiction and he's, you know, you're going to lose the house, you don't wonder if it's because you don't perform well enough in bed. That's what happens with pornography addiction mm -hmm. uh, is that women you know, ask themselves what they're doing wrong and they start to actually enter a state of trauma because of what the guy is going through. And I think more than a lot of addictions, uh, pornography really affects the partner um, yeah. so much more than any other addiction. And men need to recognize this. Um, and, and that's why, you know, men will say things that lead women to believe that they are the problem. Uh, and, and men, if you're listening, the women are never the problem. The women are never the problem. You are the problem. You have a problem. You need to deal with your problem. Do not make the woman think she is the problem. That is just cruel because it's untrue. Yeah. And that is an amazing summarization of that piece of the puzzle. And I'm, I want to get deeper into that in a bit. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask was, is it common for men to come to you being like, you know, it, I can't finish? Like, not that they have erectile dysfunction, but because of the fact that they're not in control of when they finish or or orgasm. Is that a common problem that you're seeing? Uh, yeah, and that 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 technically is erectile dysfunction. Anytime hmm. your erection is not acting as you'd wish the uh that that's erect that's erectile dysfunction with pornography what we see is uh what's called porn induced erectile dysfunction and it's absolutely and i don't want to say weird or crazy because i use those words too much um despite the fact i am weird and crazy you know <laughs> clinically um and uh what you find especially among men who have been so uh overwhelmed in their early years on the internet and have watched so much pornography is that men in their late teens, early twenties are reporting porn induced erectile dysfunction in numbers we've never seen. And the, the, again, the, the abnormal piece is that they can get an erection or they can ejaculate if porn is playing in the room. And I'll tell you a story of uh, two people that I worked with, um, two, the youngest two people I ever worked with in my coaching practice. Um, 
when I tell this story, this, these aren't their real names, but I, I always use the name Brian um, just because it pisses off my real friend named Brian. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, uh, this guy I worked with was 22 years old and he came to me saying that, you know, I don't have the money for real therapy. Uh, I don't, you know, it's embarrassing as anyway. I have this porn induced erectile dysfunction I heard you talking about on a podcast or radio show. I don't remember how he heard from me. And uh, it was like, okay, let's talk. And he said, well, I want to, you know, bring in my, my girlfriend who I always call Whitney in this story. And they started telling me their stories that they, she was a nursing major. She was 20 years old. She was a nursing major and she also understood addiction. So she didn't shame Brian. She didn't make him feel bad. She understood he had a problem and she wanted to help him with it, but she was getting really tired of the idea that he had to have his laptop in the bedroom or he had to have his phone on in the bedroom with porn. And she was saying she started to feel like a third wheel because at some point during the interaction, he would kind of switch his attention over to the pornography. So she came up with this idea, which I, you know, it, it, it blew my mind where she would sit in her living room. Brian would sit in their bedroom and they would have a sexting session via FaceTime. And because Brian was looking at a computer screen, it told him that it was pornography. Even though it's the same girl that he had sex with 10,000 times, she was on a screen. She was naked on a screen. She was doing what porn stars do on a screen. So Brian could get an erection. Right when he was at the point that he was about to ejaculate, he would call Whitney into the room and they would finish like quote unquote normal people. And wow. that's, I mean, that that's how bad it can get for some men when it comes to erectile dysfunction with pornography. Because if you think about this, if they wanted to actually have a child, that child would have to be conceived while pornography was playing on the room. Now, that's imagine bad. imagine your parents letting you know that was their situation. Imagine mm -hmm. your grandparents letting you know they had to look at porn to to conceive your father or mother. I mean, that's just something you don't share. That's something that's going to cause some trauma, is going to cause some uh, some embarrassment and shame through life. So, you know, they wanted to figure out ways around this. And what I what I did with them, you know, was ultimately, you know, just talk them through it and get them into some real therapy. Um, that's ultimately what I find most of my job as a coach is, is to be that conduit between doing nothing and seeking real therapy. You know, I'm not an academic. I'm not a therapist. I know more about porn addiction than a lot of those people, but I can't practice the way that they can. Mm -hmm. What I can do is bring my experience to the table. And I'll tell you, when I sit and talk to a porn addict for the first time and he can unburden himself, it's one of the most amazing things to watch because suddenly he doesn't feel like he's on a desert island. He doesn't feel all alone. 
I've been to a lot of the same porn sites he's been to. I've seen the same depraved extreme porn that he's looked at. I'm not going to judge him. I know that pornography, you know, may be very exotic and extreme, but I know it doesn't define him. I can talk about the time I used. I can talk about how it affected my life. And I don't mind talking about this kind of stuff. But for somebody who is in the midst of the addiction, who is feeling all this, shame who knows it's a problem talking to someone like me for the first time who is in recovery and i've been in recovery nearly seven years now it's such a big relief to them they're not alone and they never would have stepped into a therapist's office they never would have stepped into a 12-step group or gone to rehab without talking to somebody like me first Mm -hmm. Uh, it's the it's the same thing with partners who are you know to this point have always been female with me is that they don't believe it when their husband or their boyfriend says that they're not the problem, but they'll believe it when I say it. And it's such a relief to hear it from somebody like me who has been through the ringer. And I used to play those games with my wife or my girlfriends. I used to gaslight. I used to lie. I used to say and do what I needed to do in the situation that I was in. And Mm -hmm. that is, you know, that is typical addict behavior. And, you know, I can explain it to the partner in a way where now being relatively healthy, uh, they will believe me. And I can also push them towards getting some therapy as well. Because like with any addiction, even though only one person is the addict, everybody around them does get sick to some degree. Yeah. And to to kind of follow up on that, have you, has everyone that come comes to you with an addiction, do you see most of them go to therapy or is it something where they can just quit porn and their like erectile dysfunction is porn induced erectile dysfunction is gone or is it something that typically takes therapy it takes therapy because addiction is not the ultimate problem and that's what a lot of people don't recognize addiction is not the ultimate problem i see these groups online and like nofap And they're all about white knuckling and they're all about, you know, just, you know, grin and bear it. Or you've got these groups, the the red pill kind of groups that think that women are evil and they all have these underground meetings where they talk about how they're going to be really rotten to this one specific group of guys who who they feel like they fall into. And and that's it's it's ridiculous. Um, The problem is why you became an addict. Like I said, usually it's trauma brought from abuse. It could be trauma because you watched your father get killed in front of you. It could be trauma for, you know, you watched your house burn down when you were little. It could be trauma from a hundred different things. But addiction is almost always about dealing with trauma from some issue. When I finally went to therapy... It you know I, I did have to develop some techniques for staying away from porn while I was in early recovery, but it was really about crawling through that trauma. You know, there's that there's that line in Shawshank Redemption where you know Andy Dufresne crawled through a river of shit and came out clean on the other side. That's how I feel like my 
my uh, therapy with trauma was I had to go back and remember because I repressed a lot of it. I had to go back and remember the things that happened to me, the things that I saw happen to other kids when I was at this babysitter's. I had to relive this trauma. I had to, you know, do these exercises where I basically talked to seven-year-old Josh and have, you know, mental conversations with him and let him let go of this because it wasn't his fault that this stuff happened and and how could he end up any other way you know i had to go through this trauma uh almost deprogramming and it Mm -hmm. makes you mad and it makes you sad and it makes you frustrated it makes you laugh it makes you cry it it is connecting a whole lot of uh different tissues to figure out why you became the person you are not just through the trauma but this is really how you became the person you are and Based on my own experience, based on the experience of those I know who recover and are now healthy, uh, it is truly about figuring out how you became the person you are. Once you do, you don't need the crutches of addiction. Now, I can look at something and say, like, if I'm watching a movie and there's a beautiful actress, I used to fig- I used to immediately remember who- their name so I could run home and jump on the internet and see if they were naked in any movies. It took me a couple years to deprogram from that. And I still will I admit that once in a while I'm watching a movie, it's like, oh, I wonder if she's ever done any nudity. But I don't go look at it now because I've deprogrammed that from myself. Um but that that doesn't happen all the time. It's just it's not a natural reaction. When I have a bad day, it's not a natural reaction to go to porn. You know, it, football season. I used to bar hop with friends during football season um, here in Maine. We've got we've got a great brew pub scene, and uh, it was so much fun on Sundays on warm fall days. You know, having a beer here, going to the next place, having. I can't do that. You know, I don't go to bars during football games. I don't hang out at friends' houses during football games because that still is a little bit of a trigger for me. So you learn what those triggers are so you don't do it in the moment, but I don't spend 24-7 just wanting a beer, just tasting Mm -hmm. beer in my mouth like I used to once. Once you take care of the reason you became an addict, once you figure that out, once you work through it, it's amazing how the cravings, how the triggers, how so many of them disappear. You don't have to just white knuckle it through it because they're not there to begin with. And that's where I've seen the most success with with recovery. I don't want to crap all over 12-step groups. I used them for quite a while in my early recovery. But after about a year of being in AA, for instance, you know, I saw that many of these people were just drunks who hadn't had a beer in 20 years. Their life was still 24-7 alcohol. I don't think about not looking at porn all the time. I don't think about not drinking all the time. I don't want that to be my life. I saw many people in 12-step groups who their entire life is about not using. Just like when they were active, their entire life was about using. I instead want a nice full life, you know, while you and I are talking about, you know, porn addiction for however long today. Uh, you know, that's my focus. When I'm done, I'm going to go make some dinner. I'll pick up my son at work. I'll come home tonight, see what's on TV, you know, play some games on my phone or whatever. My 
porn addiction talk thinking is done for the day. It's just not there anymore. And you don't find that if you are not willing to go to the source of the problem. Yeah. That's, you know, that, that's my advice at least. Yours is much more get to the core, take it out of your body rather than a bandaid that just covers the cut. Well, exactly. It's it, yeah. You you say it very well. If you have a big gash in your arm, you can put a bandaid on it. You can wrap it in a bandage, and maybe it will get better for a while. But odds are it'll get infected. You know, odds are it'll open up again easily. You have to go to the hospital. You have to have professionals treat it. And here's the thing: even after they've treated it, even after you've taken your antibiotics or whatever you're supposed to do to take care of that nasty gash, you're still going to have a scar. I still have the scars of porn addiction. I mm-hmm. still have the scars of alcoholism. You know, I I screwed over so many relationships. I hurt so many people. Um, you know, and again, I still do get cravings and triggers now and then. Um, and my life is totally different because I've I've decided to uh you know, commit myself to sharing about pornography addiction and trying to get the word out there. So it's it's taken my life in a different direction, absolutely. But I know all of those men who don't want you to know their name, who don't want you to know that they were once porn addicts, their lives are very different too. You end mm-hmm. up with a scar, but I would so rather have a scar than have that giant wide open gash that I had for 24 years of porn addiction. Yeah. No, that's a great way to put it too. And I loved how you brought up uh, NoFap and we're currently in No Nut November, uh, a, a popular hashtag that that goes on the social medias. Um, you know, one of the things that I've heard a lot, because I do spend time on the NoFap Reddit because I'm really curious in that sub genre and, and having that conversation with maybe somewhat like an admin that's there. A lot of the the language that they use is actually in the very much masculinity realm. You know, don't fap because the if you don't fap, your testosterone will be higher and women will desire you more. Like that seems to be the language that they use is, is if you don't fap, you're you're more likely to have sex with a real woman, which I think is a pretty dangerous way of looking at it in a lot of ways. Um, but like, and it's and it's scientifically yeah. unproven. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, mo- most of these groups, NoFap, the Red Bill, all these, most of what they push as science is pseudoscience that hasn't been proven. Here's the thing that NoFap doesn't want you to remember. They originally grew out of the early days of Reddit. Why did they grow out of the early days of Reddit? Because a bunch of guys decided to recreate the bet from the episode of Seinfeld called The Contest, where they get in a contest to not masturbate for and see who can hold out the longest. That is the derivation of NoFap. All these NoFap believers and, and, and people who scream and, and swear by it, it all comes from an episode of Seinfeld. You know, th- that that's where it is. And there's no scientific proof. The more therapists you talk to, the more doctors you talk to, the more coaches you talk to, they will tell you that there is no basis for no fap working. Now, can somebody just quit porn cold turkey? Well, I'm guessing there are people who, who don't have the abuse background, who who got into it for whatever other reason, that can walk away from it. I think it's more likely that a lot of these guys simply feel shamed. A lot of these guys 
uh, are growing up in in either uh, cultures or religions that tell them this stuff is bad, but they have no actual addiction, and that's why they can get beyond. You know, can they they can say they've been successful for forty five days because they don't have an addiction. You know, it's I, I I cannot go to a casino. I know I know going to a casino is a complete waste of money statistically. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. You're not going to win most of the time. It's why I don't buy lottery tickets. Um, but the reality is, I don't have a I don't, and I, I could never go to a casino again the rest of my life, and I would be okay because I don't have a gambling issue. You know, I, I, it's, it's, you know, why do, and then talk about people who are addicts who go on NoFap. They don't succeed. You've seen the NoFap uh, posts and, and, and these different boards and stuff that uh, talk about NoFap. And you've got the same guys on there. I went two days. I went three days. I went two days. Hey, guess what, guys? For the first time in four years, I went five days. Well, guess what? You suck at this. It's not working. <laughs> <laughs> you're horrible at no fap you you want to put a counter on the bottom of your page that says three days congratulations dude that's not a hundred hours that's nothing to tell other people about you're failing try something different try something scientifically proven that works you know what i don't like i said i don't buy lottery tickets because they're absolutely a losing proposition People who buy lottery tickets, those 60% of people who buy lottery tickets and win over $500,000 are bankrupt within three years. Why is that? Because they don't learn the fundamentals of saving and, and good money spending. Exactly. Exactly. People who buy lottery tickets are by definition bad with money, whether they have $5 for their scratch off or $500,000 for that big house, yacht and boat and other stupid things they can't afford. They're bad with money. And that's the thing is that you can't put these, you can't put these people, you know, into a room, have them all, you know, say like, Hey, I didn't, I didn't buy a lottery ticket in two days. Oh, I just bought a lottery ticket. That's okay. Back up on that horse. Two days later, they bought, I mean, come on. And and yes, there are people who can be success stories, but there are people who can quit heroin cold Turkey. There are people who can, you know, quit cocaine cold Turkey. I I don't know how they do it, but it's possible. But you cannot use cold turkey as a solution for getting better, especially if you are an addict, because there are things going on in your mind when it comes to brain chemistry that are different. And mm-hmm. with these guys who are just casual users, uh, there isn't stuff happening in their brain. They want to think there is. They believe in this concept of rebooting. And and that that that's a lot of crap. I I challenge you to find any study where they talk about rebooting when it comes to pornography addiction. It doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. It's it's you know it's good for these guys to feel like they're doing something. I I once worked at a call center. We sold DVDs for parents who have unruly and and uh, un- misbehaved children. 
you would get these parents calling who just wanted to throw $300 at you for this DVD program, and they would never touch it. They thought just going there was going to take care of the problem. They didn't want to actually listen to the program and work their way through it. That's the same with this. Just because you go on a no-fap board and don't yank it for two days doesn't mean your problem's gone, and it doesn't mean you actually have a chemical problem and a physical problem in the first place. Maybe you just feel bad about this. I felt mm-hmm. I feel bad as some of the people I've teased in my life doesn't mean I'm actually a bully. Yeah, that's a good point, too, and how you tied it to the fact that maybe you've just been programmed by your religion or your culture to to feel shame about it would like that wouldn't be what you would call an addiction. That wouldn't that'd still be a problem you have to work through, but it wouldn't be the same as an addiction. Well, I think that, again, addiction is a lot of in the eye of the beholder. Um, You are going to find that religious people self-report that they have a problem with pornography far more than people who live in a secular society. Why? I don't think it's because they actually look at more porn statistically. I don't think it's that they masturbate more. I think it's that they feel bad more. You talk to some of these guys who who tell you that they're porn addicts uh, who are religious and they're men who look at porn once a month and feel like because they look once a month, they have an addiction. Um, Now, if they look on the same day every month and they are ignoring their kids baseball game or whatever that one time a month, that actually can be an addiction. You know, you can have binge drinkers who drink twice a month and have an addiction. Um, You don't have to do this every day. You don't have to do this five times a week to technically be an addict. Uh, It just has to be that, you know, negative consequences, negative behaviors, yet you do not have the ability to ultimately control them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that most of these men don't actually want to control them. It's not that they can't. Or it's, it's, it's not that, you know, they have that f- true feeling of addiction. It's that they like to look at porn and don't want to say it out loud to anybody else or themselves. You know, I, I liked looking at porn. I don't mind telling people that. It made me feel better. I liked looking at pretty girls. I thought looking at sex was exciting. Now, it was ultimately unhealthy for me because of my origin story and, and what it turned into, just like alcohol was. But there were people who can have two and three beers you know, once in a while and not be an alcoholic. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's my individual story, just like addiction is your individual story. But I think that a lot of people don't understand what addiction truly is, the effects it has on people's life, the effects that it actually has on their brain. And those things aren't happening, but because they feel the shame and the embarrassment, uh, they feel like, you know, if they've ever had a conversation about porn, perhaps they were being judged. They could actually have some PTSD over, you know, their porn use, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make them an addict. Um, yeah. you know, it makes them somebody who you know, wishes they didn't use porn, but likes to use porn and doesn't want to admit it. Yeah. I would say I fall more in that realm when you explain it that way is that it's just like, you know, I grew up in a really Christian home and I would say that that is definitely the factor that plays into it most when it comes to my thoughts around it. And I'm, I'm working to quit and I, 
you know, it's one thing I don't want in my life. I don't really want to find it necessary. I don't really find it necessary. Like it's not something I prioritize over anything else. Um, but it, yeah, that's, that's an interesting aspect of, of how you put it. And I've always kind of attributed it more to the religious thing yeah. um, than the aspect of I rely right. on it. Cause- and, and there are some guys who they have a, 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 they know or they believe that pornography is not moral. And again, that's a discussion that I've had with many people of, of ranging from it's all moral to it's all completely immoral. Um, and people have to make their own decision of that. But I think that a lot of guys who misplace the addiction know that they're, they are engaging in a behavior that they define as immoral. And because almost all of their other behaviors are moral, they think that it's an addiction because they're engaging in, in, in immoral actions. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to touch on, uh, briefly, uh, that was, a, that's been a lot of content and there's a couple things I want to more touch, but in the last, um, 30 minutes of, uh, this conversation. And one of them was how it affects, um, the partner. And you said, I think you said earlier that you've never dealt with a partner where the partner that is, the partner of someone suffering from addiction is a man. So right. I've never, I've never worked, I've never worked yeah. with a gay couple, um, and I've never worked with a heterosexual couple where the man is worried about his wife's yeah. uh, porn addiction. I have worked with females who are porn addicts, but they have not been in relationships either with women or men. Yeah. Um, just the way it's happened, I think that I'm, I'm, I know I'll break down that wall at some point because more and more women are using pornography and more and more women have easy access. They never want yeah. it to be. They don't want to be caught coming out of the, you know, adult bookstore. Uh, yeah. And now they don't have to worry about it. They didn't want to go to the, you know, movie theater in the 70s with the sticky floor uh, because who knows how safe that even was uh, yeah. being in a room of men, you know, touching themselves. Yeah. Um, but they can now. So I, I think you're going to see much more of an increase. And I think that you're going to find uh, and I have read about them Um and, and read case studies of women who are addicts, who have husbands that, that are yeah. not. It's so, just it's rare at this point. Yeah. So my question would be, because I, I do have quite a few female listeners, what would you say to them who, if they know or they want to bring up potentially whether or not their boyfriend has a porn addiction or how would you, what would you say to a woman who, who is going through that? I would say what you first have to do is uh, plant the seed with them that you believe that they may be, they may have a uh, unhealthy relationship with pornography. Now, this is also important to underline, do not push your own morals in this situation and confuse it with addiction. There are a lot of women who I will speak with, and after half an hour, it's very clear that their partner doesn't have a porn addiction. It's just that the woman hates pornography and doesn't want it in their relationship. Now, if a woman tells a man in a relationship, I don't want you to look at pornography, uh, if it's a good relationship, he shouldn't do it. Just like he should be able to say, I don't want you to wear purple socks. 
and she goes along with it. That's a relationship issue. That's not a porn addiction issue. And I often, there's a lot of time where in the beginning, I have to tease out what is the actual issue. Is it porn or is it that this woman hates porn? Um, and the guy's just kind of an, an ass about it um, mm-hmm. and, and keeps looking, uh, or does he really have a problem? Um, I first would say plant the seed that you think that they have, they may have an issue. You may be the first person who's ever brought this up. They may think that to themselves and you bring it up means something. Odds are they are going to laugh you off or say that you're wrong, whether they have a problem or not. Um, because it's jarring to be told, hey, I think you might have an unhealthy relationship with pornography. A lot of guys at that point will try to compare themselves to other guys, say that it's not an issue, say that they don't look at porn, whatever it is, they'll try to minimize, rationalize, and get it out of the way. But you did say something. Uh, You also then need to figure out what your boundaries are. If you don't want this guy looking at porn ever, and he truly is an addict, well, at what point are you going to start putting your foot down? Uh, What does putting your foot down mean? You know, a lot of women jump immediately to, if he looks at porn, I'm going to leave him. And the reality is they don't, because that's such a drastic step. Maybe the next step is, you know, I'm not going to sit down to meals with you if you continue to look at porn. Maybe the next step is we're not going to have sex. Maybe the next step is you're going to sleep on the couch. Um, There can be all kinds of different uh uh, repercussions to this that the man needs to start to understand. If he truly, and this can be, you know, in a regular relationship, if he is an addict, I think that women are in absolutely the greatest position because they can start to make certain demands that I need you to go to a 12 step group. I need you to go to therapy. I, you know, I need you to look into this. There are you have to get a sponsor. You have to get an accountability partner if you expect me to stay. The one thing that I will say to women is do not create boundaries and threaten repercussions if you're not willing to go through with them. Um, I, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I wrote a book with a therapist about this exact stuff because women have so many questions when they, when they find themselves in this position. So we took the 65 most popular questions and he answered them from the point of view of the expert who has worked with hundreds of couples, uh, if not thousands at this point. And I answer it from the point of view of the, I've been there. I had my wife in this situation. I am a former addict. And there are so many women who have just thanked both of us because, you know, a, a lot of women need to be proven that pornography addiction is real. It's not just a uh, function of being a pervert. You know, they don't know. Do do you go and tell his mom? Do you tell his best friend? Do you try to do an intervention like you would with drugs? You know, mm-hmm. all, all of these. And, and the thing is, much like any other addiction, everybody has their own story. So you have to play it out well. But it's something that can't be ignored because, like all addictions, it escalates. Um, It becomes more extreme. One of the things that I've also learned in talking to these female partners is that they believe, and I've I've, uh, heard this as well with people I know who are drug addicts, alcoholics, is that most people who are not addicts 
believe that we are trying to get the next big high and make the high higher. What's this extreme high we want? And that is completely false. We are trying to get the same high that we got in the beginning. The problem, because that that's enough of a high for us. That's why we kept using this stuff in the first place. Mm-hmm. But because your dopamine receptors flood, because things like oxytocin, serotonin, I mean, it, it's it's six or seven different chemicals that all play into this. Because you have essentially dulled your nerve endings in your pleasure centers, you've flooded your brain with so much of these chemicals, you need more and you need more and you need more. And that's why it escalates. That's why the alcoholic has to go from beer to wine to to hard stuff, because they need a higher percentage of alcohol. It's why the uh, gambling addict is $25 a hand of blackjack, then 50, then a hundred, because that little cheap thrill they got of, will I win or not? Isn't the same if they keep going with $25. It's like how, you know, most people don't realize this playboy magazine went out of business this year. Most people don't even know that because it's playboy magazine is so off our radars now because they're, most guys who, you know, started with with the uh, paper products moved on to VHS or DVDs. You know what? Go into an adult bookstore. There's not a lot of DVDs or VHSs anymore because, mm-hmm. like the rest of the world, everybody is streaming. So, you know, now you've got the internet for everything, in- including the streaming. This is, you know, this is the progression of things, and with streaming. You now have all of these options. You know, like I said, you, you can get silly, but if what's going to get me off today is a bunch of elderly people doing it or people playing with food or whatever it is, if that's the thing that I need to see today to get off as an addict, that's what I'm going to watch yeah. because it's about tickling that in my brain. It's not that I want to be with an old lady or wear a diaper. It's that that's what was able to make me hit that spot. And uh, and that's what, that's what a lot of uh, people need to understand is that uh, men and and women, but people are not the pornography they look at. And the further they go down the rabbit hole into porn addiction or needing to use more porn, um, you're going to get into some very, very extreme stuff, some over-the-top stuff, stuff that you wouldn't want to see in front of you in real life. But that's what you're able to use online to reach that point. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought up a really interesting point there that I know is the next topic of your book. And and your your upcoming book is Porn in the Pandemic, How Three Months in 2020 Changed Everything, or it was released already, yep. sorry. Yep. Um, you know, OnlyFans is a huge thing that has really blown up in the pandemic. Uh, how are we seeing the future of porn? What does that future of porn look like? Cause you mentioned streaming. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the pandemic has changed everything. And if you want all the facts and figures and, and stories from former addicts, um, they're all in that last book that I wrote, Porn in the Pandemic. But I found the most interesting stuff comes from the people who are making porn. Um, you know, long story short, OnlyFans on J- January 1st, 2020, had 300,000 content creators. It's expected by January 1st, 2021, 
that OnlyFans will have 1.3 million to 1.5 million content creators. Now, 400% increase, if my math is correct. Well, yeah. And that's, and and, (laughs) and I think it's even scarier that it's a million friggin' people, you know, of which which 80 to 85% are women and young women at that. Um, You know, they were the ones who, during the lockdown, during the quarantine, uh, these are the waitresses, these are the bartenders, these are the hostesses, these are the, you know, uh, people who work in retail that make commission. They are the ones who cannot go to the unemployment office and get the full benefits that a lot of white collar workers can. So where does that leave them? They still have to pay the rent. They still have to, you know, maybe feed their kid or, or pay their, uh, uh, you know, car payment, whatever it may be. Um, and they're stuck at home doing nothing. Well, this is also the the 18 to 25-year-old demographic that grew up with the internet. They don't know a world before the internet. They grew up with complete access to pornography. These women and men uh, don't have the same stigma towards nudity, sexuality, even pornography that the people who came before them did. Um, You know, when I was in high school, and we're going back to the early 90s now, uh, there was no internet. The only way that you were going to see the hut cheerleader in her bikini was if you were invited to a pool party or you went to the beach with them. And, you know, if somebody took a picture of them at a pool party or something, that was as good as money if you brought it back to school and showed guys it. Now we live in a world where every girl is expected to have a couple bikini pictures on Instagram. Every guy is expected to have a picture with his shirt off to see how chiseled he is and, you know, on Instagram. That just didn't exist even 20, 25 years ago. And now, you know, what? what is this, what was a bikini photo when I was in school is now an actual naked photo that these people are making for each other and trading around at the high school level. You know, something like 70 to 75% of the child pornography in this world is made by the children because they're sexting each other and they're passing it around. Um mm. And as they get a little bit older, well, what's the difference between a 17-year-old girl and an 18-year-old girl? Not very much. And except the 18-year-old girl can now go into business for herself. And if she she's probably got an Instagram page where guys have looked at her and told her how hot she is. And if she knows she's good-looking by our society standards today, um, you know, she probably thinks, why not go for it? I talked to one girl who, you know, she was working before the pandemic. She was working at the Gap eight hours a day, five days a week. She didn't go off to college. She decided to, you know, take some time off. Um, and she was making, I think, thirteen fifty an hour, maybe $14. And she was telling me for what she could make in a 40-hour week, she could work half a day on OnlyFans. And these, I, I spoke to probably eight or nine different women and two guys who, who were on OnlyFans. And among the women, the lowest earners for the month were $2,000, $2,500. I was talking to other women who were making six, $7,000. And it didn't necessarily have to do with the content itself, more of it had to do with how much attention they paid to the guys and and whether they were giving the girlfriend Mm -hmm. experience and and talking to them and making them feel special. But the other thing was occurring as well. 
some of these women are in it for the money. They're saving for college. They they want nice stuff. They are there for the dollar signs. But there are a lot of women who go into this, and I, I interviewed several of them, and the interviews are in the book, where they start talking about, yeah, I love the money. I love the freedom. I love not working a lot. But I love the fact that I'm called beautiful. I love the fact that I'm called special. I, you know, I can walk down the street around here and nobody looks at me twice. I go on a lot of first or second dates, but there isn't a third. I'm nothing special in real life. These men make me feel special. You know, the fact that I can put up a photo of me in just a bra and panties. And I know that there's a guy out there that will pay $10 because he likes me and he will, you know, he'll tell me how pretty I am. And then I'll, I'll say thank you. And that makes his day. And I'm feeling great about this and I feel good about myself. And I love it when I log on and see these messages. And Well, what are they doing? They're logging on to get a dopamine hit. They're being called pretty. They're being called special. Their pleasure centers in their brain are operating they're kicking into high gear and this is what i what i worry about is that 2020 is going to be remembered as the year when it's traced back that porn addiction from a producer's point of view started Mm. you know we talked a lot about the porn industry back in the 70s or 80s how many porn stars really existed back then? 500? 1,000? You know, it, it wasn't much. It, it, it actually wasn't easy to become a porn star back then. But now, if you have a webcam, or you don't even need a webcam, if you have a iPhone, you can do the do-it-yourself porn at home. You can, you can have it posted, and there are guys who are going to pay money for it and talk to you about it. Now, you're getting this fix. I wonder if 10 years from now, 20 years from now, are we going to have 40-year-old women and 50-year-old women who maybe they're only making one-tenth of what they're making now, money-wise, but are they still going to be doing OnlyFans? Are they going to be doing cam sites? Are we going to see like an older cam set generation uh, or, or cam site generation uh, of of these women uh, and and men because this is you know the same with them who are doing it for the fix of the dopamine. It's not mm-hmm. about the dollar. It's about being told that they're special, they're pretty, they're wonderful. That's why so many of them are after this, and that's what I ultimately what I ultimately fear, Luke, is that we are going to see a a generation. Uh, of people now that there's well over a million of them making porn who become addicted to making porn. You know, yeah. you, you, listen, you, you watch uh, documentaries about porn from the 70s, 80s, even early 90s. You can see that some of those people are absolutely addicted to sex. You can see that some of them are absolutely, that's why they went into porn. That's why they are, you know, that's why they're, they're making those movies. I think that there are going to be a lot of people who are, uh, they're like the attention-starved uh, influencers you see on YouTube. They're the attention-starved influencers you see on you see on Instagram. They just don't have an issue with showing their body parts or showing themselves having sex. And you look at some of these influencers, and they are clearly addicted to what they're doing because they get a rush, they get that feeling they, of being special, of being you know someone different than everybody else, and they live on that. That's their dopamine hit. That's what's going to happen. That is mm-hmm. absolutely what's going to happen with 
you know, a segment of these porn creators. And like I said, I think that while we've needed 20 years of internet to figure out just what some of the issues are with porn addiction from a consuming point of view, I'm sure we're going to need another 15, 20 years to really understand the problems with porn mm-hmm. addiction from a producing point of view. Yeah. And that's a great point too. I didn't even really compare it or even think about comparing it to influencers. But you know, if I think about it, one of the top searched, I believe on Pornhub is like amateur because people really like, you know, the, the idea that there's a home, a real authentic couple, real yeah. authentic in quotations or whatever, um, putting out content and they like that it's, it's real. It's, there's an aspect of it. Um, and then comparing it to Instagram, like, yeah, people are there and they post and on YouTube they post and it's specifically for attention. They try to hack the system, the algorithm to get the attention that they used right. to get. Um, and when the way you explained it, you know, I think it's a lot of lonely men on on OnlyFans as consumers, but I also think it's a lot of lonely women on OnlyFans as producers. And there's that yeah. that because they want that attention, they want that high. The guys like the high of getting responses. The guys feel really lonely by themselves. I think that's one of the reasons that they are addicted to pornography in the first place. And we're going to see a, a loneliness epidemic as. We've seen the fatherless pandemic or epidemic, not pandemic, the fatherless nation. I think we're going to see a lonely nation coming up soon, too. Um, there's a lot of problems that I think are on the horizon of society, and it you went over it really well there. Well, and that that's it. We are a we are moving very quickly to be a sexually unhealthy society. And I can't say that the, you know, of, of 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, a, you know, society of sexual repression and nobody talks about this is really very healthy either, but we, there's a healthy medium to be found. Um, we can't be Puritans who never talk about sex and wear 12 layers and pretend that this is only about procreation to make children. When, People are watching porn and people are masturbating and we're just not admitting it. But we also can't live in the Caligula days of orgies and, you know, people just in the streets, you know, making pornography. That's not a healthy society either. We need to be willing to discuss sexuality. We need to be willing to discuss pornography, how it's used, you know, unhealthy ways of using Um and we need to have a lot more education. And that's really what I'm about, is just saying we need to educate about this. We need to talk about this. You know, I'm sure that there are people out there who think, well, I, I watch a little bit of porn, but I'm never going to get to this guy's point. Well, you know what? I never thought I'd get to the point that I had to go get help. But if I was going to save my marriage, if I was ever going to rebuild a relationship with my kids, if I was ever going to, you know, get back on my feet professionally, I needed to get help. And if I can get to that point where all of those things are falling apart in my life, anybody can get to that point. I wasn't the 19-year-old pervert in the basement because that guy doesn't really exist. At that point, I was the 37-year-old guy who from the outside looked like he had a pretty good life. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. most por- most porn addicts look like they have a pretty good life because unlike, you know, alcohol where you are slurring or you're stumbling or you reek of booze, it's much easier to hide the fact you're a porn addict. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I wanted to kind of end this conversation with some statistics that, that you think are really important or, or maybe the most 
um, jaw dropping, uh, society defining. I, I don't share a ton of statistics anymore when I do presentations and whatnot, because I think the pandemic has absolutely rocked this world. And I think that I think that the numbers, the real numbers are would just be laughable. That's how bad I think it's got. The one I will go back to, and I tell people to keep in perspective, this is a study from 2016. It's from an organization called the Barna Group, who interviewed thousands of men. In the 18 to 35-year-old age group, 33% said that they either have a problem with pornography, that they look at too much pornography, or that they are addicted to pornography. Now, this is self-reporting. This is, you know, so I think that some people didn't report because they were embarrassed. Some people may have overreported who aren't truly addicts, but this is one out of three men under 30 who ha- who believe they have an unhealthy relationship with pornography from 2016. Now, we are knocking on the door of 2021. Do you think the problem has got any better in five years? No, I would say it's gotten much worse. Yeah, exactly. And that number of 33, one out of three, we almost have to strive to get back to that. That's mm. how bad things are getting. That's how fast things are going bad. Um and that's, you know, that's why we need to talk about this as a society. If health classes in high school would spend one day a year talking about porn addiction, they talk about drug addiction, cigarettes, all, you know, all, alcohol, all that stuff. If they could spend one day talking about porn addiction for, you know, to make up for all the parents, which is a vast majority who won't talk about it, I think you'd see a big dent in those numbers. But we live in a society that doesn't want to talk about porn addiction. And that is going to be a huge downfall, you know, years from now, if we continue this, we cannot Mm -hmm. be, we cannot be reactive. We need to be proactive. We were reactive to the opioid problem. And now we're being, now we're trying, we're, now we're trying to be proactive, but we were reactive for too long. And we need to be proactive with this problem now before 20 years from now, when half the guys under 50 are porn addicts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Joshua, I wanted to say thank you so much for being here today. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. I've wanted to have one focused on porn addiction for a really long time. And I'm happy that you reached out when you did. I felt like I was ready to have that conversation or prepared to have that conversation. Um, you have three books, uh, The Addiction Nobody uh, Will Talk About, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships. He's a porn addict. Now what? And your latest one, Porn and the Pandemic, How Three Months in 2020 Changed Everything. Thing. I'm assuming everyone can find these on Amazon. Is that correct? Yep. On Amazon. If you're too lazy to type my name into Amazon, just go to my website. If you think you have a problem, go to my website. I write a lot on there every week. Um, I have a TED Talk coming up soon. You can get details of it there and watch online. Uh, RecoveringPornAddict.com. If you have any questions, want to get in touch with me, want to see what I have to offer, that's the place to go. RecoveringPornAddict.com. Perfect. And do you have social medias? I do. On Twitter and Instagram, I am P Addict Recovery. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, and I am fighting and screaming with my social media manager to not get back on Facebook, but we'll see what happens there. Perfect. Well, Joshua, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your wisdom, your knowledge, and this conversation. So, 
Um, have a wonderful American Thanksgiving, and I, I look forward to releasing this episode to my gener- uh, to my followers. They seem to really like the porn conversation. Men and women seem to like that one a lot, so I appreciate it very much. Well, and thank you for giving me the platform. You know, I have the message, but I need somebody who has the medium. So, you know, hats off to you. I appreciate the fact that you were able to have a conversation like this at an adult level uh, where we can talk about these issues. So, you know, thanks a lot, Luke. Thank you. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this week's episode of The Imperfect Pod. If you would like to find out more about today's guest, you can connect with him on his website, recoveringpornaddict.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at paddictrecovery. Josh also has his first TEDx talk this Sunday, December 6th. Um, You can sign up by clicking the link in the description, tedxhartford.com. I've signed up, so make sure you sign up as well. Also, if you're interested in his books, you can find the links to them in the description below. As always, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you press the follow button, subscribe button, or left a review. If you would like to dis- discuss today's topic, please feel free to message me on Instagram at The Imperfect Pod. Um, and again, Facebook group. I've started one, The Imperfect Group, where we will continue to have these conversations as a community to discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposefully. So link in the description to that as well. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in and I'll see you all next week.